Greetings and salutations, Surf and Sales podcast listeners. We are very glad to have you back for another fun episode. I'm here with my good friend, Scott Lease. And of course, we got to give a shout out quickly to our two major sponsors, Lead411 and Gong.io. So if you haven't checked out those two uh, folks um, at this point, I don't know what else I can do to help you. Please go check them out and uh, you should know who they are and what they are by now. And if you don't, then shame on you. Uh, with that out of the way, let's welcome our good friend. Um, he is a consultant, trainer, practitioner to the stars. Um, he's worked with everybody from Tom Cruise to Willem Dafoe um, and, and Brad Pitt. Mike Simmons, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. I thought you were talking about Scott Lease. I know, right? Like one would think. I'm like, oh, wow, where did we uh, find this person? Scott used to, when, when Scott shaves his face, he looks like Lance Armstrong. A lot of people don't know that. So um, he gets that a lot. So that's why I prefer to look like a homeless person most of the time. Right. Scott's hobo chic. Uh, yeah. uh, so Mike, seriously though, thank you for coming on. If you don't mind, give everybody some context of your background um, just so they have frame of reference for where your thoughts are coming from. What are you doing now? When did you really get into sales? What kind of deals have you worked on in your life? Um, don't bore them and put them to sleep, but you know, give them some context. Uh, short story. Uh, born in New York, uh, so I've got New York background, and but then high school in Southern California, so I've got kind of the best of both worlds. I tend to be really direct. Uh, my background in sales, though, I started with I never wanted to get into sales. Uh, operations background at UPS, consulting background, implementation success, they call it customer success now in the ed tech space. Uh, started carrying a bag in 2000 and five or six realized really liked it and then took on escalating positions in um, a couple of companies and uh, left the W2 space about four and a half years ago, five years ago and started Catalyst Sale. And uh, as a company, I help organizations build sales capability and capacity by simplifying things. So that's my background. Enterprise sales guy. Wait, wait, hold on, hold I don't on. get caught I, up in the small stuff. <laughs> so, wait, wait. And, what is this sales catalyst? You know, that's very buzzwordy, right? Like, yeah, give us a definition. Tell us what the catalyst sale is, Mike. Yeah, so um, in every organization who fits in your ideal customer profile, so let's focus there. So if you've got an ideal customer profile that you work with, in every organization, if you've defined your ideal customer profile properly, there's somebody who gives a shit about the problem you solve. They are the catalyst. They're the person who can help you navigate the organization and can help you get things done. Your job is to find that person who deeply cares about the problem you solve for in the organization and then work with them to help solve for that problem inside the organization. That's the catalyst. That's great. That's great. Mike, I want to ask you about a dynamic of give, 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 which is all the rage, add value to people, help them out. At what point is it okay to ask for the business and, and not get crucified for it, right? Uh, especially, especially for somebody like yourself who's, you know, a consultant working for yourself. Like, at some point, you got to ask people for the money, right? When, is, when does it become okay to do that? 
I, I mean, I don't think there's a straight answer on when it becomes okay. I mean, you just, you, you ask. And like you and I went back and forth. I sent out a tweet and I, I tagged you on a tweet where I was basically saying, look, I'm inspired by a couple of people to share information. The mistake I made on that one is I said, hey, no Patreon. And two of the people that are in there have Patreon accounts. You and Dave have Patreon accounts. And there was somebody who jumped in on that. It was like, yeah, you got to give this stuff away for free. Okay, excuse me. I've been giving stuff away for free for years. I mean, we've got 200 some odd episodes of the podcast. I share, I'm very direct in the way that I share stuff. So I struggle with this piece. Like, when do you start asking for the money? I think the thing that you want to do, my view on it is you make it easy for people to work with you. There's a free version of me. There's a somewhat cheap paid version of me. And there's a really expensive paid version of me. And a lot of that depends on what part of the value chain I'm contributing to that discussion. So if I'm contributing very little to the value chain, um, then uh, where and value for me is time, the amount of time that I'm investing that I've actually got to put into it. And not that I want to get paid hourly and any of that kind of stuff. But if I'm contributing a significant amount of time, then I'm going to expect to get compensated for that. If I've set up a structure where you can apply your own time, but I'm going to make it really easy for you to navigate, then I'm expecting to get paid for that. But I'm not going to get paid as much if I'm, if I'm carrying you all the way through the process. And if it's just the stuff that I'm sharing broadly, publicly, all of that other kind of stuff that you're going to figure out how to work with it, then I don't expect to be paid for that kind of stuff because quite frankly, sales isn't significantly different today than it was 200 years ago. Um, it's still about connecting the dots between a problem. So the catalyst who cares about the problem and a solution, whether it's known or unknown. And if we connect those dots and help move things forward quickly, then we should get fairly compensated for that to talk about who, what, why, where, when, how, that kind of stuff, and then ask um, you know, people to spend a couple thousand dollars for a course. I think that's a bit ridiculous. But I mean, the, the story, and I know I'm rambling here, but I've got one more piece. I've heard people say, look, I can, you can buy my book for 15 bucks. And that $15 book will give you everything that you'll hear in a keynote that I give that may be 45 minutes long. But in that 45 minute long keynote, you might spend $10,000 for that keynote or $15,000 or $200,000 for the keynote. What's the difference in the experience there? In one instance, I've got someone sharing information that's in a book that maybe people read the first 10 pages and disappear on. In the other one, I actually feel an emotional connection that changes. In another one, I'm trying to drive some other perception inside the business. So, you know, I. Scott, that's a long-winded way of saying I don't fucking know. And but I think I it's <clears throat> I really I really like this like three-headed hydra that you talked about of, of uh the free version of me, the super cheap version of me, and then the expensive version of me, which I would actually say is the the regular price versions of me of me, right? The non-discounted version. Right. Of me. So yeah. I like that that three uh the three options there that's that's a good way to phrase it that lands true for me cool well and you're gonna find the same thing so like if i'm interacting and i'm on your patreon group so i if i'm interacting with you on your patreon group it's still you interacting with you on twitter it's still you you don't change so the version of me it's not that you get a different one it's just the amount of how much access to my brain do you have and how much that's am i going to be able to respond how much content you get right 
So, What's that? How much and the level of content? I think I think I think some people run courses or trainings or or Patreon groups, or whatever, and it's certainly about like the volume of content. But I think what Mike is talking about and the way that I think about these things is like access. It's accessibility. Like how much access do you have to this particular indiv individual's, you know, thought process, their, their knowledge bank, trainings, you know, do you get on calls with them? Can you text them? Can you email them? Can you interact with them on social? How responsive are they? Like it's the level of, of accessibility, right? And so for, you know, in, in Mike's example of like the discounted version of me, like you're not necessarily getting a thousand hours of Mike's time, but you might get quick responses and those quick responses are valuable. Now, if you want the full price version of Mike and, and catalyst sale kind of trainings, well, that is a thousand hours and that is the, the real price. I think that might be a distinction there. Does that sound accurate, Mike? I'm putting words in your mouth probably. Yeah, well, like I, so I can't work with everybody who I think I could help. Uh, granted, I think I could help everybody. So from an ideal customer profile, there's a, you know, am I off a bit? One, you know, like if the question is, do I think that people could um, get better at sales if they move back to the basics, the basics of asking better questions, leveraging story, knowing how to effectively manage your time. So knowing what to say no to, using project management, assessing risk, calling people to action, holding people accountable. Can people get better at sales with that stuff? Yes. And quite frankly, they can get better at operating in their family. They can get better at operating in their neighborhood. They can get better at operating their community. They can get better at operating product. These are foundational skills that help people solve problems better and make a better impact on the world. So I think everybody can benefit from that. Can I afford to work with everybody one-on-one? -on -one? Absolutely not. Will P if people, my DMs are open, uh, if you can have told people, don't send an email, things disappear. You want to get a hold of me, send a direct message on Twitter. If you've got my cell phone, send me a text message. Those are ways to get a hold of me and get a hold of me quickly. Slack is another great way to get a hold of me quickly. Email to die. So it just, it's a, it's a matter of, um, you know, how, how accessible, like you said, um, uh, how much are you actually going to carry people all the way, th all the way through it? Like I can't, I can't sit down and go through everybody's business challenge, but I can give you some questions, basic questions that you should be asking to identify your own business challenges and self-assess and then actually be able to build from there. And the problem is it's not sexy. It's what problem do we solve? Who cares about the problem? Why do they care about it? How are they solving it? And then start to get into some when things. Who, what, why, where, when, and how. If you were a journalist at any point in time or if you've ever written anything, you understand the importance of those questions. Yet for whatever reason, we don't like asking them in our own business. We think there's some trick or some quick fix or some silver bullet that's going to help an easy button that exists. I don't think, there I don't think we ask that. I, I think it's not that we don't want to, that we're looking for a quick fix. I think we're afraid to admit we're wrong. Oh, like we're having to, just, just like any other relationship, we have a relationship. And as a salesperson, you have a relationship with your own, you know, business, right? With your own entrepreneurship of running your territory or the same with managers and lead. nobody wants to admit that they're wrong, right? Uh, it's, one of, it's one of the reasons people stay in relationships too long in the personal side of life. So 
Um, I want I want to pull us out of this because I'm, I'm afraid people are thinking that we're talking about how important we all think we are and that we're <laughs> worth every dollar, right? Um, so hopefully, if people are still listening, they are. Uh, I want to come back to something we talked about a little bit before we scheduled the the before we turned on the mics, which was let's talk about the dirty stuff. Let's talk about the stuff we're not talking about, right? And I think um, you bring a very unique perspective based on your background and your role and and you know even your sort of New York attitude of like, don't take no shit kind of stuff, um, even though you're still a Jets fan. Let's talk about the dirty side of the underbelly of business and sales. What are you seeing these days that are making you go, wait a minute, why is this happening in sales? I think the big one is like the whole belief of there's only one way to do it. Like this is the way to do it. If you are a cold calling is dead, then nobody should cold call. If you are a big fan of cold calling, then everybody should cold call. If you are a huge fan of inbound, then everybody should be doing inbound. If you are a big fan of outbound, then everybody should be doing outbound. If you're a big fan of tech stacks, then everybody should have this kick-ass tech stack. It's this idea that there's just one way to do it. And I think you talked about it a little bit before this kind of, we've got these egos. We don't want to be wrong. So by the time we believe our own stuff and we say, this is how things should be done, then all of a sudden that's the way they should be done. And we have this confirmation bias we, and we create this challenge. So I think that's we, one of the challenges. How do we confront that? One is an individual that you're going to have to make change. Right. And then two organizationally, right. Because to a certain extent to do it right, you've got to sort of buy in yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, what what advice do you have for people? And and you can you know, please reference a story from your own life or or sales or whatever to to help get that across. Yeah, I mean my my biggest downfalls have been ego and loyalty. Uh, I yeah, the relationship thing. I stay around businesses a little bit too long and realize oh shit I could have left a couple of years earlier and gotten out of this and gotten other experience. The other one is ego. It's, hey, I've figured out the way that it works. So I'm just going to keep doing it this way because if there was a better way, I would have already figured that out by now. So for me, it's been ego and loyalty. And um, anytime that I am making a decision where I believe that it could be influenced by either ego or loyalty, I force myself to pause and take a couple of more beats and just kind of pull in more data before I make that decision. What's what's an example, right? Like go back to your early career. And I I have this exact same issue, right? Of ego and loyalty. Um, I've, I've gotten better at confronting my loyalty side. My ego definitely still gets the best of me. Um, Was there a particular scenario in your life, your career that you finally waited, you know, for either one of those issues. Yeah. So I was, I was a uh, part-time supervisor at UPS way, way, way back in the day. So this is like 2000, this would have been uh, like 94, 95, 96 ish. And um, finally, my contemporary, I was such, I was such a jerk in that operating environment that I actually had a leader in the organization give me a book called Managing by the Heart or Managing from the Heart. And, um, and it was all this, it was basically empathy. And uh, it, there are a lot of people who say I'm a robot and that I have, don't even understand the word empathy. Um, this would have been that period of time where I really struggled with this stuff. And the whole view was, 
you know, everybody's just a cog in this thing. We've got an operation. We have a Gantt chart. That Gantt chart says, this is how things should work. If we add headcount here, it'll turn into this. If we move people from here to here, it'll turn into this. And you realize you're not dealing with ones and zeros when you're dealing with human beings. You're dealing with human beings where there's a lot of variance. So perfect example, I, 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 had, a, I had a member of my team cry, brought her to tears, because I was just pushing too hard during our peak season and I was a complete asshole. Uh, so that good example of that. Now I'd like to think that I moved on and got better at that, but I've implemented process, even in the last VP of sales role that I had, I would implement processes inside that organization and say, this is how we do it. Be very prescriptive and regimented and realized over time, all that did is just get in the way. It reduced the amount of thinking that was taking place inside that operating environment. So yeah, and, and I that's, still struggle. That's really that. good. So what is, what kind of thinking did it prohibit that you finally went, wait a minute, they're right. I totally over-operationalized or I like, I like to call it over-engineering the process, which is what I do. Yeah. What were some of the things that, because I want to give listeners a chance to go, oh, maybe I'm doing that and this is what I should listen for to, to make a better, a change for the better. Well, the big thing is seeing that there are other people who can perform when you just give them the flexibility of to perform within a certain set of kind of guidelines or guideposts or, you know, kind of foundational principles. That was, that's the, the big thing, but realizing that, um, oh crap, there are people who were following the process and just going through the motions. So they were filling out account plans just because they knew that was one of the requirements. And before you know it, all the account plans start looking the same or all the call plans start looking the same. Once all these things start looking the same, you realize people are just going through the motions of doing things because they feel that that's the expectation that they have. Um, so that to me is, is a big, is a big trigger. If everything starts looking the same and we know how people operate, then, um, then we're doing something wrong. Is that cycle possible to, to break though? I mean, what do you mean? Well, because at some point people figure out things that are working and then those best practices get shared. And once they're shared, there becomes mass adoption. And then everything becomes the same all over again until something new kind of evolves. Like I, I have a, a, a friend and a good follow on, a, on Twitter named Chris Fago. And he, I, he wrote something this morning that was like, I'm surprised that outreach hasn't started selling in a marketplace the best sequences that are out there. And I'm like, yeah, that's, Pretty good idea. But then what will happen is everybody starts using the same sequence and then it's dead, right? So I, I, I guess I'm saying, I, I don't know that that cycle is breakable. Do you dis, dis, disagree with that? Well, I mean, how many times have you seen the same proposal template with the same typo sent out to multiple customers? <laughs> more than I would like to admit, to be honest. Right. So like, so we, so we, so here's the cool thing about, you know, sales pros. What we do is we, we see people who are successful at something. And we say, Oh, that looks like it's kind of interesting. I want to go ahead and, and do it. I want to reuse it. And um, the challenge that we have there, and there are members of the team who are going to be really good at the repeating the same process over and over and over again, the functional, the functional things. We're not going to want to have a lot of transition, but then there are going to be others who are going to be able to say, Hey, let's start coloring outside of the lines. Let's change the way that we do things because we need to innovate in one way, shape or form. 
And you know, think about going to, for anybody and you know, Richard, you've got uh, eyeglasses on. I've got a pair of you know, eyeglasses. I don't wear them as much as I should. Um, but when I went to the eye doctor and the eye doctor held the paddle up behind my, my eyes, it was in a blind spot. And there was only one way for me to see that paddle. I had to shift my perspective. I had to either change my shoulders or change my head position. And then I could see things. Sometimes we get caught up in this process of optimizing for process. And I'm a big process person. We optimize for process and we create ruts. We create blind spots. We create depth in, the, in that lack of perspective and we miss opportunities to innovate or change. So I think it's a balance. I think we need some people who are going to be okay testing things and we've got to be some people who are just going to foundationally move forward with the process. And we've got to understand which people are we dealing with? Are we dealing with people who, you know, who just want to surf the way that they surf? Or are we dealing with people who want to be on a specific set of rails and be in this operating environment? And there are different people for different, you know, different strokes for different folks. Do you then in that theory, right? Yeah. Let's say you, and this, this could be over engineering too. You've got the BDR who loves to experiment and can, you know, hit goals even while they're experimenting. And then you have the other BDRs who's like, no, nope, I don't want to experiment. I got them dialed in. I want it to work. Do you change the comp model effectively for those types of people or do you still have to keep them the same? That's a great, great question. Um, uh, if they are the same, if they're the same role functionally inside the organization and you've got some kind of legal thing that requires that the comp model is consistent, then I don't see how you, I think you got to be careful. I don't see how you, how you change the comp model. But if you're saying I want a BDR who's part of the innovation team, because that's what they want to do. They want to do something that's different. Then yes, I think you can absolutely change the comp model and you can have different variables. So like, I'm not a big fan of using activity based variables to compensate people as a measure of success. Um, I prefer to see the output, the outcome. So what are we doing? So like, if, are we going to comp someone on the number of calls they make or are we going to comp someone on the number of validated opportunities that they create? I can go regardless of role, Mike, because I think there's some people who would say comping SDRs only on the outcome is, you know, unfair to the SDR. Okay. Well, it, you know, it depends on the outcome, right? So I yeah. have this argument all the time is like all the SDR BDR can do is set a meeting. Please stop making them qualify. You know, if the deal gets qualified, you can't tie someone's compensation to an arbitrary thing. That's so right. What if they're setting bullshit, uh, terrible meetings? Or if you then, then that's a coaching and management issue, Scott. There, you know how to manage sure, people. Sure, you sure, manage sure. me out the door. It is for sure, but but in the meantime, I'm supposed to, I'm paying you. I'm you're I'm giving you more commission because you set a inflated number of meetings that were all garbage. Yeah, Scott, if you I'm sorry, Mark, Mike, just sit back. If you can't, if you can't recognize that fairly quickly that that's part of the problem, then there's a management issue, right? Not an SDR issue. Look, even Mike's agreeing with me, Scott. So you know. Yeah. Just give up now. Well, so hold, so there's, so again, it's perspective. Like what are, so let's ask the question, what problem are we trying to solve for? So in this instance, what problem are we trying to solve for? Meeting do, set. Okay. Meeting set with whom? Is meeting set really the problem we're trying to solve for? Because I can go to the gym every day. It doesn't mean I actually move weight around. 
Yeah, but that's still, look, that, that's all part of training and coaching, which then comes back to a management. So it is meeting set with the, with the right ICP. So with the right ICP, you don't right. know, in the, in the collaborative decision-making process that occurs these days, you know, you got to give your SDR a lot of free, you know, a lot of runway that even if it's just the end user and not the decision maker, that that's still a worthwhile meeting for that AE to take because it's not going to get them to close business, but they know that person's involved and it's up to the AE to figure out how to navigate that approach. Right. So, so for me, that's how I see it. Yeah. So, okay. So and I think there's alignment here. So we're working with the ICP at an organization level, the right company. Let's say we sell to semiconductor. If I have an SDR that sets up a, me a meeting with a media company like Disney, is that a good meeting? Hell yes, it is. Well, fuck, we sell, but hold on. We just said we sell to semiconductors. There's somebody, there's somebody over there that they could talk to. If, if it's not I don't care. As, like we're not. It doesn't matter. But if are it's not, we, if are it's we. not defined as your ICP of like, here's your patch, here's your territory, then you're right. It's not yeah, worthwhile. Right. So, okay. So we've got an ideal customer. So it's semiconductor. And then we've got ideal roles within the semiconductor space. It might be three different roles. It could be a head of learning and development. It could be someone who's responsible for instructional design, and it could be a chief people officer or whatever. So in the ed tech space. So I've got three profiles. Now, if the SDR can schedule meetings with someone who's in the right company, in the right role, then that's awesome. Because as a sales rep, as an account executive, I should be able to create a validated opportunity based on that meeting. If my validated opportunity is set at a low enough threshold where it's, I can foresee that we would conduct business with each other. I'm not talking about closing business. I'm just creating a validated opportunity so that we're actually building, building pipeline. And then we start to do different things with those. So I think, I think the problem that we have here is we solve four problems thinking we're solving for this problem and we're actually talking about this problem over here and we're having a disconnect in the communication that we have inside organizations where we just quite frankly have a hard time answering that question. What is the specific problem we're solving for? And then beyond that, why is that important? If we're solving for a revenue problem, let's solve for the revenue problem. Is, is it a demand gen challenge? Is it an ideal customer profile challenge? Is it a something else challenge? You know, like let's, but let's focus on the problem that we're actually solving for. It's good. This is a good, healthy, uh, healthy debate, especially with the, the, the three of us, we could probably just argue for three hours straight and it would be entertaining for, uh, for some people. Because <laughs> We know we're really important. That's why. Well, just like you said earlier, <laughs> Mike, um, is there anything that you miss about being part of a, a team and a, an organization at all? Or are you just like so far beyond it now? You're like, never going back. I don't miss anything. I'm curious about that. I'm asking because, you know, I'm just wrapping up my first full calendar year um, on my own here. And like, there's definitely things that I, that I miss still about being part of an organization. I'm wondering if that is just like a, a hangover from be just barely being removed. You know, there, I think there always will be. So it's, it's kind of like when I first started working from home, um, was there something I missed about going into the office? Well, you miss the team interaction that you have inside the office and the being able to go to lunch with a couple of folks and all that other kind of stuff. And I started working from home back in 2003. 
Um, will I, would I ever want to go back and work in an office? Absolutely not. So then you start to go through and you say, well, how can I solve for that problem in other ways? Well, one way I can solve for that problem is I can go meet with customers at their location and then I can get the office environment feel and vibe for a period of time. I can go meet with my team in an office environment and I can get that feel or vibe for a period of time. On the W-2 side of things, you know, like there are, I mean, there are times where I think you know, it'd be really cool to ha- be in that space because now all of a sudden the attention and focus is laser focused and I can start learning other things. Um, is it something that really draws me in right now? No. Will I say never? Oh, because I think there's going to be the right opportunity where, it's at, where I've got to go through the trade-off process of saying, can I accomplish more with one than I can accomplish with many? And, you know, so I think that's the question that will constantly rattle around. I, the good thing, I am absolutely having a blast doing what I'm doing. Like I, I have a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. Do I feel like I'm missing something because I'm not part of a broader leadership team? Uh, not really, because I'm a part of multiple leadership teams in one way, shape or form. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I, what would it take? What's, what's the number, Mike? Everybody's got a number. Let's, what would it take? Is it, is it, is it the number though? Or is it? Yeah. It's so for me, it's not the number. Like I, so the thing that I, the, the gap that I've got, if I look across, like I've done, I've helped organizations build. I don't have an exit. Now what does, what, what's an exit? Is an exit that I sell a business for a buck and I've exited and now I've checked the box and I've got an exit. There's um, probably I, a meet, a, some type of meaningful dollar amount. Exit. There's a meaningful dollar amount with that, with that exit. Um, but buy a car, is it enough to buy a house or is it enough to do whatever the hell you want forever? Well, it's the, and it's the same thing. Like, I mean, you could tell whether or not I had a good year as a rep based on what we did. You know, did we go on a really cool vacation? Uh, did we add something to the house or did we do a, you know, Arizona staycation kind of thing and you do whatever, <laughs> like there's just, there's different levels that you go, that you go through. So I don't, I don't have an exit. Um, I've not done that inside an organization. Uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing, helping people solve what they think are complex problems with simple, you know, simple approaches. Um, Am I ready to go back into the W two thing? Uh, no, like it's just it's. Uh, I'm I'm having too know, much now fun. Now that you're working, you've already established work from home, and the rest of the world's moving to work from home. I'd be curious, right? Oh, I would never. I won't. I will not go into an office. I I, I could tell that is that is that's not even a. Might there be a scenario where I would get in my car and drive to an office every day? There is no. There is no scenario where that so, happens. Let's, let's actually talk about that, right? Because there's so many companies who are going through, oh my gosh, how do I manage this remote team? Are there two or three ideas that you could share with people because, you know, they're doing the best they can. There is no written playbook for this unless you've written it. Um, and if not, you should, I think. Um, what are a couple of suggestions for people who are managing the work oh, from I mean, home? Like it, just, it, this is going to sound really freaking weak, but I'll say it anyway. Treat people like people. Realize that it's the same kind of scenario, whether you can look across them and see what they're doing, or you get on a Zoom call, or you interact with people in Slack. You still have people who are doing work for one reason or another. Figure out why they're doing that work. 
what inspires them? What gets them excited? What do they want to do next? If I know what inspires you, what gets you excited and what you want to do next, then I can lead you from any, I can lead from anywhere. I'm a board shorts and flip-flops guy. Like I just, that board shorts and flip-flops does not translate well in an office environment in midtown Manhattan. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't roll, but that's, and I, and you can't take that away from me. Like I'm just. Scott, there's your look, challenge, buddy. You, Scott, your challenge is to go make it viable in the New York city. Oh, that, that, region. that might be a impossible uh, thing. I, I, I pulled it off in Austin. Okay. Let's we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, but what people realize is I can be as effective in board shorts and flip-flops as I can. And actually I probably can be more effective because I'm more comfortable. I'm like, I, I like a whiteboard. I like to be able to draw up on it. I like to be able to do those things. So then the next piece is in engagement. So if it's always, if every conversation I have with a member of my remote team is about how are they performing their individual role, then is that relationship, how deep is that relationship? If I believe as a leader that my, the value that I deliver to the team is I'm accessible in a room where they can come and tap me on the shoulder or I can walk by and see what they're doing, then I've got to question whether or not I'm actually providing real value to the team. And now I get that there are going to be certain roles where you have to have people together as a group and it's just going to work out better if you have those people together as a group. I choose not to work with those organizations. And I'm, I, I just, I, I, I don't, there are enough people who want to work inside those organizations. Let's let them do that. That's their ideal customer. I'll focus on the ones who understand that, you know what, we're going to hire really well. We're going to hire people who deeply care about the work that we're doing. And we're actually going to have good relationships with these people where we build up a level of trust and someone doesn't think someone's always watching over my, watching over me to say, Hey, how quickly did they respond to that email or how fast are they responding to Slack or how any of those things? Like I could, here's another one from a remote perspective. I work stupid hours. Like I am one of those people who gets up at four o'clock in the morning and I'll get things done and I'll be up at 1230, one o'clock at night getting things done. I make it very clear to people that I do not expect a response immediately. I do respect, expect a response during the work week within 24 hours. So if it goes any more than 24 hours, then, I, then something happened. Either I didn't, the message didn't get across or we missed on something. As long as they're working, I expect a response within 24 hours. Anything, there are jackasses out there who respect, expect immediate responses. And, it, and you could see it even in the office environment where people would reply all to that inner office email that said, hey, there are donuts in the break room and everybody's responding back. Thank you. It's like, I'm signaling that I'm working and I'm checking my email. That's not work. That's signaling. Like, there's, there's the title of the episode, right? That should be the title, right? The jackasses who expect an immediate response to every message. You should just change it to the jackasses who hit reply all. That, you know what I mean? We can all agree on, on that one. Anybody, anybody who's going to watch this episode on, on YouTube will know this, but for those of you listening, Mike is like the king of whiteboards. Like, this whiteboard behind him right now is like hieroglyphics. Like, you know, there is a code that only Mike can decipher right now. There's like one symbol in there I can make out, which appears to be the yin and the yang symbol. Everything else. Pound sign. I saw the, I saw the, the British pound you? sign. I don't see that one. So. He's <laughs> apparently supporting the Brexit. He's supporting Brexit. Supp apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> apparently so. Do you know how long it's taken me to learn how to draw that freaking currency sign? Like I got to the point where people were just saying, just draw a dollar. 
Like everybody understands it. Just draw the dollar. You don't need to do it anymore. <laughs> like like you look like you look like you've got a second grade education. <laughs> yeah, like we know what you mean, Mike. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what it is. I mean, so Mike, what do you? The, the beauty is this is really simple. Like if you're looking at this, you're saying it's hieroglyphics. It's not. This is demand gen. Where does money come from? This is revenue gen. Where does money get created? This is retention and growth. And it looks like a wave. Somebody makes a decision, purchases something, and it grows. Now, the detail is going through and saying, what are my demand gen channels? How do I generate revenue? And then how do I classify organizations as I grow? And what we overcomplicate the shit out of this stuff. And well, when you, uh, But Mike, when you explain it, it starts to make some sense and reveal itself. If I just look at the, let's call it an image on your whiteboard, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Maybe, Rich, maybe Richard is. No, 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 no. So. So Mike, I, so I do have a question. So there are a couple of symbols on the whiteboard and for people who are listening, you know, you can go check it out on YouTube. Um, you do have the yin and yang. What's the relevance? And then I see these arrows that look like they're a compass. What do, what do those recognize? What do those represent? It's kind of like asking you to, to define your tattoos. Yeah. Well, actually I, I joked with somebody, I have a tramp stamp of this. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, <laughs> the, uh, the no offense, everybody. The, yeah, no, no offense. offense. Sorry. I, I am sorry for offending uh, folks. Anyhow, I just got too loose. So, um, so this is a traditional Eisenhower box. So you go uh, important versus urgent and deciding how do I make the decision on where to focus my time and energy and what to do next. Uh, this one is uh, same kind of matrix, but applying problem and solution. So is the problem that we're solving known or unknown? is the solution that we're solving known or unknown. Depending on which, where it falls in that quadrant, I either need to amplify my marketing, I need to amplify my direct sales, I need to start looking at different ways that I can invest in the organization. This is that growth piece. So customer makes a decision, they buy something, and then ideally they continue to go through the growth wheel, growth wave. These are decision-making processes. This is call planning, account planning, and this one, which I affectionately refer to as uh, my tattoo, but it's, it's in the logo of the business. And all that is, is ideal customer profile. It's about using an area chart, so to speak, to create focus by answering statements in the affirmative. You know, so customer over 5 million in ARR, enabling technology, technical founder, outside of the States looking to build the business here in the States, that would be, they'd answer yes to all of those. They're now part of the ideal customer profile. So it's just a matter of taking simple tools, frameworks, and applying them in the right situation. Am I applying them to make a decision? Am I applying them to hold myself accountable? Am I applying them for something else? So what, and what's the yin and yang for? So that is the balance between problem and solution. And like, so as we start to go through this, like there's just going to be this, um, there's just going to, there's going to be this constant evolution as we go through working with people there. Um, we should be able to, you know, as we solve for um, problems, we or excuse me, as we identify problems, we should be able to solve for those problems and have solutions. As we as a business work with customers, we should as a business continue to be able to grow and get back to what Scott had asked before about when do you ask for money. All of these things need to work together with each other in order for us to move forward. If they're not working together, then someone is taking up too much of the value chain and we're getting ourselves into a situation where someone's going to feel left out in the relationship. Yeah. 
the interesting thing to me every single day that we have these conversations, Richard, is just realizing how little I actually know. I, don't, how do, I can't, I never thought of these things that Mike's talking about. I can't articulate this Eisenhower box. I don't, I don't even know how I've existed in this world of sales. I feel but like I, not, you, I, I have, having worked for you, you do this naturally. Like I've said this a thousand times, there's something inherent in you that has figured this stuff out. I'm a happy accident is what I am. Well, that's fair, you know, we'll see. So like, so you I, really, I really like that, the decision matrix ideas and stuff like that. That's really good. So you, you play tennis, right? Yeah, well, okay. used to forever. Yeah, so, you, so you used to play tennis, you played tennis. Like there were, there were certain things that just came naturally to you when playing tennis. And there are certain things you probably had to work on yeah. in order to get better, yeah. right? So it's the same, it's the same kind of stuff. There's components of this where people will just go through and they'll say, you know what, I do this and it just comes naturally. I think about it. Like, do I really go through and write out a call plan before every call with a customer these days? Absolutely not. I, I just, I don't, I don't do it. Mentally, do I know what my plan is? Do I go in there with an objective, understanding what my objectives are, what their objectives are, what my desired next steps are, who's going to be in the call, those kind of four barriers? I do. Yeah. But at first, I've got to make it a deliberate practice to get comfortable with it. And then it becomes just natural. And I, there's, a, can, there's this kind of phase that you go through with learning. What, what is it? It's unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. As you work through this continuum, we'll go through that with all of these things. And I think, I think we as leaders forget to help our teams understand the basics so that they can execute on the really exciting things. I mean, like if I saw you play tennis, Scott, I'd know you were playing tennis. Why? Because you're not using a hockey stick. Well, at least, well, it depends on how you play tennis, I guess. But like there, there's a, but there's a, like you can see it. So when you look at good sales, you can, you can see it. When you look at bad sales, you can absolutely see it too. Yeah. That's good. Mike, we got to start to wrap it up here. What can we do to, um, to be helpful to you? Is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to kind of highlight or any, any questions that you might have for us? I'm still just trying to figure out what the hell do I want to do when I grow up? So do you have like a, any, like are there questions I should be asking myself to figure out what do I want to do when I grow up? I don't know. I'm asking myself that same question. Let's ask Richard. He's the oldest and wisest of the three of us. Yeah, sadly, sadly I am. And, and I think it's, how long have you been married, Mike? Oh God, why did you have to ask me that question? That's part of the, that's part of the answer. Uh, 90, oh. 90, 90, I usually, when Jen's around, I affectionately say an eternity, um, but uh, 98 is when we got married. So, so math on that so, is what, 22, pushing 23 years? So then this is my challenge for you. And then you have to report back to us. You have to record a video and post it on LinkedIn. Uh-oh. Jen, <laughs> honey, what should I be when I grow up? And leave, let's see what she has to say. Because I bet she knows. And she's been working a long time to try and get you there, just like the rest of our spouses have. So, you know, but that's, that's I where I think the answer is. I will, I, will, I will do that. Right. Be prepared for what we talked about earlier about that, you know, our willingness of our ego and, and our loyalty to get in the way, right? So. Mike, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for spending time with us, man. I always enjoy talking to you. You're always candid and direct and enthusiastic and energetic and uh you're a good sport 
suffering through this after uh, my Buffalo Bills beat your New York Jets yesterday. So uh, we almost made it through the whole episode without me rubbing it in, but I couldn't, I couldn't hold off. It is, uh, it is, it's disgusting. And then to, to put, rub salt in the wounds, the, I, the Islanders lost to Tampa Bay uh, yesterday and they look like they're just, I mean, they're just not as fast and not as big. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. been, it was a rough weekend of sports for me. So, and Mike, thanks again. And, and again, thanks to our, to our two favorite sponsors of lead 411 and gong.io. Like I said, at the beginning, if you don't know who they are by now, um, come out from under the rock, but um, you know, we love having you, Mike, you are one of those people that's easy to talk to and makes doing this so easy. Um, we really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.